This morning's reading will come from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in this uh, fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is today's reading. Who are the children of God? There's a peculiar notion permeating our culture that all people are children of God. And this misguided presumption is one of the reasons why so many in churches today have such a struggle believing some of the foundational Christian doctrines. They ask, how could God judge and even damn His own children? How, how could God fail to save His children? Why would God allow such harm to come to His own children? And then they suppose that God, if He is good, must be incapable, incapable of saving, incapable of keeping and protecting His children. But the Bible does not teach that all people are God's children. No, it gives specific criteria for that qualification, characteristics unique to that standing. Now, I should give the caveat that in the sense that God is the creator of the human race, it is possible in that respect to say that all are children of God. But when the Bible talks about the fatherhood of God, who has God as their father, it never does so in the sense of God's creation. To address God as Father involves a relationship of intimacy. To be a member in good standing in the family of God is a privilege never to be passively assumed or taken for granted. In fact, it is the greatest privilege of all to be able to come to God, to be able to address Him as Father. And we are not able to do that by nature because by nature, Ephesians 2.3, we are all children of wrath. Jesus, even as He was confronted by the religious leaders, descendants of Abraham biologically, and when He claims to do the works of His Father, He tells them they do the works of their father, the devil. Even as they're claiming their father is Abraham, their father is God, he tells them, no, your father's not God. Your father's not Abraham. Your, your father is the devil because you do the devil's works. And so we need to remain aware of this, even as we are positively influenced by covenant theology, that we and even our children are not automatically covenant members of God's own family. My daughter was at Bible camp a number of years ago, and when she felt that God's Spirit had worked conversion in her life, she, she let her cabin leader know that she thought she was now ready to commit herself as a Christian. Unfortunately, her cabin leader assured her that she knew me to be a Christian, and as she heard me speak at camp for a number of years, and she was quite certain that any child of mine was a Christian as well. 
And so instead of guiding my daughter in the proper responses for a new believer, she tried to give her a false hope that she was already a child of God on the basis of her lineage, not realizing that the only thing my children could hope to inherit according to their biological lineage is a propensity to sin and ultimately the wrath of God. Having me as her father does not make my daughter righteous, does not make her part of the people of God. Adoption into the family of God comes with the gift of God's own spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Those who have received the gift of God's spirit are led by the spirit And this is confirmation that we belong to God because the Spirit Himself bears witness that we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So kicking off our passage this morning, part of this confirmation, one of the criteria unique to the children of God is that we are no longer slaves to sin. There is now no obligation to live according to the demands of the flesh, Romans 8.12 So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, there's a logical relationship between the previous verses, 1 to 11, and verse 12. The work of Christ and of the Spirit has enabled believers to fulfill the righteous requirements of God because God has given the Spirit, and now they are in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Believers have died with Christ to sin because God condemned their sin in His flesh. Therefore, believers are now no longer debtors. They have no obligation to live according to what the flesh demands. We are no longer subject to the tyranny and mastery of sin in terms of our everyday lives. We are no longer slaves. By implication here, we are debtors to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. Now, it may be intentional that Paul doesn't follow through with the parallel, since the language of debt and repayment don't perfectly describe that relationship. It's not quite appropriate to say we're repaying a debt to God, and so Paul doesn't say that. But we can rightly be called slaves to righteousness, Romans 6.19. Slaves of God, Romans 6.22. We now have a new master, no longer belonging to sin. We now belong to Christ. Rather than an obligation to the flesh, we now have an obligation to live for Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God has saved us so that our lives can be characterized by the obedience of faith. This is a central part of the biblical gospel. Now, verse 10 has already told us that believers will still die physically. And until such time, they continue to fight and struggle against sin. They're not perfect But the emphasis is that since they are in the Spirit, the flesh doesn't exercise dominion over them any longer. At this point, 
This isn't an exhortation to try to attain such a status. Paul's not telling us here what to do in order to be these people, but he's referring to a fact that is true of all believers. All believers are no longer living in debt to sin. They no longer have an obligation to sin. And yet, even though this is already an objective fact, true of all who belong to Christ and are indwelt by His Spirit, this does not keep Paul from giving numerous warnings against succumbing once again to the flesh. In the tension that exists between the already and the not yet, believers are warned of the danger of submitting to the flesh. What is already true of you, objectively, now needs to become your experience. You must walk in this truth. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Do you see how these things follow? There's an objective truth, something Paul's saying here that is true of all believers. Now he's going to call us to walk in it, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this life-death paradox where those who live according to the flesh will die, but those who put to death the deeds of the body will live echoes a very common teaching of Jesus uh, recorded six times in the Gospels. Luke 9, 24 is one, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Another parallel to verse 13 also exists in Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. These warnings are severe because life and death are on the line. And the death here contemplated is not merely physical because verses 10 and 11 have already said that those who have the Spirit will still experience physical death. And so the death threatened here is not just physical death, but death in the fullest theological sense, the death that is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, and is linked with condemnation. This is the death of condemnation we're talking about. So it's not just that the one who sows to the flesh, the one who lives by the flesh, will physically die. We're all going to die. The one who lives according to the flesh will be condemned. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, we're all alive right now. It's not as though only those who do this will have the next breath that we take, but eternal life, life to the fullest, God's own life granted to us. And so when we have life and death on the line in a severe warning, we get to know that how one lives is of utmost importance to God. Going back to Romans 2, 6-8, where Paul writes that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, this does not mean that Paul is promoting salvation by works. In fact, Paul's already in trouble, and he's explaining his doctrine because 
He is the grace alone gospel guy. And they're saying, how can you tell people that they don't have to obey the law? They're just going to be a bunch of hooligans. They're just going to do all sorts of awful things if you, we don't teach them to obey the law. And Paul's saying, no, we don't need to teach them to obey the law because the Spirit is going to do this work of sanctification, creating obedience from faith. And so Paul's not now coming back to salvation by works. He does not assume here or demand a perfect success rate. He simply states that believers will be those who put to death the deeds of the body. When Christians do not live out the character of God's Spirit living in them, we fail to take saving faith to its logical conclusion. We do not do righteousness to get God's gift. Rather, righteousness is God's gift in Christ. And we demonstrate active faith in Christ as we live accordingly. We do not stop sinning in order to be saved. Rather, we are saved from sin through faith. We are saved from sin's tyranny, mastery, and control. And the believer's once-for-all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin, putting it to death in our members. It makes it necessary and possible for us to do so. We are granted the power to fight sin in our lives. The flesh and the desires to carry out the deeds of the body are incredibly strong. So strong, in fact, that we are completely unable to wrestle with them ourselves. We don't just need a power-up. We don't need to, to do some weight training for a little while. We need someone stronger to fight in our stead. These things are so strong. These desires of, of sin in the flesh are so strong that overcoming them is best described as putting to death that which is longing to burst forth back into life. And so we are commanded to, to summon and harness our wills to overcome sin. We're commanded, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're commanded not to live according to the flesh, but the squelching of sinful impulses is not finally attributed to the agency of human willpower. Follow the logic of Paul's argument in verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So who will put to death the deeds of the body? All the children of God. Because all the children of God will be led by the Spirit, and all who are led by the Spirit will live according to the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. Those who experience eternal life are those who put to death the deeds of the body. And how do they do this? They do it by the Spirit. What does this look like practically? To put to death the deeds of the body, we must be led by the Spirit. This is very commonly misunderstood because this being led does not describe the Spirit guiding us in making choices our navigator as we make some important decisions. Sometimes we conflate leading and guiding when it comes to the Holy Spirit. 
But these are drastically different terms. Paul is speaking here not of being guided, given direction, being pointed in the right way, but of being controlled by God's own spirit rather than being controlled by the desires of the flesh. Every true child of God is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, verse 9, and has the daily privilege of allowing the Spirit of God to control them rather than being controlled by the flesh. The verb describing God's children is a passive one. It is not that they follow the Spirit. The command is not go now and follow the Spirit, but they are passively led by the Spirit. It suggests that the Spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience, that it is His work in believers that accounts for their obedience. That is, human obedience is the result of the Spirit's work so that even our moral transformation is fundamentally the work of God. And so we're given commands. We have to summon our will and make good choices. We have to fight sin in our lives. But ultimately, the credit will go to God who is saving us by faith alone. Victory over sinful passion, putting to death the deeds of the body, is only by the control of the Holy Spirit, which means that believers conquer only by relying on and trusting the Spirit to provide the strength to resist the passions that are waging war within us. This is war language. Do you see this? Put to death, execute it. By transforming our minds and teaching us to trust in God's promises, the Spirit enables us to wage war against the desires of the flesh offered through the deeds of the body. We need a greater desire. And the Holy Spirit continues to to show us that, show us the goodness of God, point to us the greater desire than the desires of sin. Understand that Christians are not simply called here to live holy lives. We're not just supposed to have an encouragement this morning, an exhortation to go and try to live better. There is an element of when we understand the truth of God's Word that we will desire to go and live better. But that's not point one of the message. Step one is not go and do better. It's not simply that Christians are called to live holy lives, but that they have been made new and have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. For you to go and live better, you need to know that this is true for you. You need to know that you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can go with confidence and know that the victory can be expected. You can expect that as the Holy Spirit is working in you and changing your desires and empowering you, you can go and live in greater obedience than ever before. To think otherwise is to distort the gospel and denigrate the character of a holy God who calls people to live in a restored relationship with Himself. Those who truly embrace the biblical gospel, will experience a changed life. Those who live according to the flesh will suffer death and eternal condemnation because their life clearly demonstrates that they have never been born again, that the Spirit is not in them, and therefore they are not children of God. 
Do you see the logic of this? Those who have the Spirit, it will be evident. We can't say, well, so-and-so said a prayer one time. I think they got baptized. And sure, they don't live for God in any perceivable way. We, we don't see them putting to death sin in their life, obviously. But I think that, you know, they're probably still a Christian. This is what Paul's battling, this false teaching that says, well, if you make a decision once, well, then you're good. He's saying those who are truly the children of God will walk led by the Spirit. They will be controlled by the Spirit. They will not live according to the flesh. This does not mean that Christians never sin, but have somehow reached perfection. Yes, God's people, Ephesians 4.30, sometimes grieve the Spirit. Yes, God's people, Acts 7.51, sometimes resist the Spirit. Yes, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, they even quench the Spirit. But the, the lives of genuine Christians will generally show the Spirit's work. As they are controlled by the Spirit, they and others will recognize clearly that they are sons of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this verse draws us right back into the major themes of chapter 6 through 8 of Romans. When Israel lived under the law, they were unable to keep it, but ended up being put into exile for their sin. And those who did not have the Spirit of Christ in them were subject to slavery of sin. They were not able to keep God's law and were subjected to the power of sin to rule over them. And since sin results in death, Romans 6.23, those who are under the law but still slaves to sin would live in fear of the condemnation that they actually deserve. So the fear contemplated, the spirit of fear that's contemplated here is not just random fears of various kinds. It's like, oh no, this is a good verse for if you're feeling afraid of the dark. You know, this isn't the verse to mem- have your kids memorize when they think there might be a monster under the bed. It's not that there's no spirit of fear, but, but a spirit of adoption. There, he's saying here there's a specific kind of fear. This isn't various fears or fear in general, but the fear of final judgment, which is the result of sin. We talk about fearing God and how that is a positive trait for Christians, and yet the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. There's two kinds of fear contemplated here. We are not, as Christians, living in fear of condemnation. We do not, as Christians, live in fear of final judgment. We have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons. It doesn't mean we don't still fear God in the sense that we want to please Him and obey Him and know that if we step astray, He will discipline us back into order, but we are no longer afraid of condemnation. In contrast, for those who have the Spirit of God, they they do not have this fear. There is now no condemnation at verse 1 of of chapter 8, and, and that is why there is no longer any fear for condemnation, right? How how can we fear something that we are told does not exist? And because, verse 2, they have, uh, sorry, and why is there no longer any condemnation, verse 2? 
is because they have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you see the logic? So there's no condemnation. Why? Because we've been set free in Christ Jesus from this law of sin and death. And, and since there is no condemnation, there's no longer any fear of condemnation. We have been delivered from the spirit of slavery which brought fear and have been given the spirit of adoption which brings life, joy, peace, and intimacy with God so that we can call Him Father. Now, contrary to what you may have heard, Abba is not the customary word used for a by a child for their father in the Aramaic of Jesus' day. It is not the equivalent of daddy in English. It does not reflect a childish affection. It is not a word that a young child would call their father. But it is instead the respectful intimacy of a son in a patriarchal family. It is a respectful term, much like father is today, which is why... Uh, each of the three times that Abba is used in the New Testament, it is used alongside the translation Father so that the readers who were not commonly able to read Aramaic would understand what it means. So in Aramaic, Abba simply means Father, uh, and that's why it's translated so. And it is doubtful that Paul is simply, though, giving an Aramaic lesson to the Greek-speaking Christians in Rome. So they don't, they don't read and speak Aramaic, and he, and he uses an Aramaic word, and the reason why we don't translate it in the English, because then it would just say father, father, because we have father in Aramaic and then father in Greek. But Paul doesn't care that the Christians in Rome don't understand Aramaic. He's not trying to teach them slowly over time. He is actually evoking Jesus' own prayer in Mark 14, 36, as he faced impending suffering. And this is going to connect us to verse 17. Keep this in mind. Just as Jesus cried out to the Father in the garden when he was about to be crucified, he was going to be shamed, beaten, abused, have slurs hurled at him, and then he was going to be tortured and killed. He cried out to the Father, Abba, Father, and so also the adopted children of God have been granted the right to cry out to our Heavenly Father. Adoption in Paul's world was very different than adoption today. It carried many implications which would be foreign to our thinking. And to start with, adopting a child was almost unheard of. Because adoption was generally a method of taking on a legal heir for the purpose of them assuming management of the father's estate. And so, if someone wanted to care for a child, they wouldn't have to go through a legal process of caring for that child. Nobody else wanted to. There wasn't a social services. You just go ahead and feed that child as long as you want to. It'd be like a stray cat. It'll just keep coming back. But adoption was, was a legal thing to say this person is the heir who will take on the estate. One of my mentors, Marty Cooley, writes, In Paul's world, the adopted man abandoned all privileges and rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. 
He legally acquired the same status as a natural-born son and became heir to his new father's estate. By law, his old life was completely erased. Isn't this amazing? By law, all legal debts were canceled, and he was exonerated from any liabilities that were incurred before the adoption. Indeed, any debts, obligations, or liabilities from which the adopted son was freed were handed over to the adopting father who was required to take care of those debts, obligations, and liabilities. The adopted son could no longer be held accountable for what he had done in the past, since as far as the law was concerned, that person had ceased to exist. Well, that's very different than adoption today, right? So as God's adopted children, it's not like dad just takes care of us now. It's not just that, okay, we got someone looking over our shoulder watching for us, and now that I'm adult, that means a little bit less. As God's adopted children, we are freed from the debts and obligations of our former lives, and Jewish believers have been freed from the authority that the law previously had over them. Every believer is now an adopted son of God. And women, this is good news. This isn't uh, failing to use gender-inclusive language because we're, we're being rude about it. In this day, sons inherited. And so in the church, women are put on the exact same status. They are also sons in a legal sense, those who are inheriting the same as the men. So this is good news for you. Every believer, and this is why in Galatians, Paul says there's now therefore no slave nor free, Jew or Greek, male or female. He's not saying, hey, we're, none of our genders matter anymore. He, he's saying... Look, we're all on the same status, adopted sons. Can you believe it? Every believer has been taken out of his or her former family and future inheritance and brought into a new relationship with God as father and given the inheritance of a child of God. God's family is comprised solely of adopted children. There are no natural-born sons or daughters in his divine household. In fact, you might think, well, what about the Jews? Were they not natural-born children in this family? In chapter 9, verse 4, Paul speaks of Israel's adoption as one of the advantages that were enjoyed by the Jewish people. So it's a long story, and I'm not going to get right into it, but in the Old Testament, the, uh, the um, exodus out of Egypt was considered to be God's adoption of Israel. And so Israel was adopted as God's children, and now Gentiles are being adopted as God's children in the exact manner, by grace alone, through faith alone. So this is one of the advantages enjoyed by the Jewish people, along with the promises of a new heart and the Spirit of God. And these promises given to Israel have now become a reality for Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit. So the church composed of Jews and Gentiles, is now God's adopted son by virtue of being united with Christ, God's own son. Now, verse 16 follows on the heels of verse 15, explaining how it is that believers can confidently cry out that God is their father. How do we know? How can we say, God is my father? Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, again, this is a very commonly misunderstood passage. This does not refer to a burning in the bosom, 
some sort of subjective inner feeling, inner warmth that we know that we are loved and belong to God. The Spirit Himself bears witness to the Spirit of believers, confirming that we are children of God. It is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. We are reliant upon the Spirit alone for confirmation that we are God's children. That assurance of salvation is not left up to personal witness and subjective mysticism. It's not as though I have a feeling and that's how I know that I belong to God. It's not this, this inner warmth. It's not my inner dialogue. No, the Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God. What does that mean? The evidence of the indwelling Spirit, verse 5, Romans 8, 5, is that our minds are set on things of the Spirit. Verse 13, that we live according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14, that we are led or controlled by the Spirit. Verse 17, as we'll further explore in a minute, is that we suffer with Christ. Paul has given all the evidence, the examples of what the Holy Spirit will be doing in those who genuinely have the Spirit of God. And all, all those who have the Spirit of God belong to God. They are His children. Those who do not have the Spirit of God, right? They, they are not God's children. How important is this for someone who understands that some Christians have the Holy Spirit and some don't? How wild is that? When the Bible says that all who have the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God, and those who don't are not 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I'll just pause there for a second. It's not contemplate. It's not, it's not see if you have an, an inner fire. It's, it's not see if you're, you're having some sort of spiritual ecstasy. It's not are you telling yourself that you are a child of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ or that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Step back for a second. What what tests have we just looked at? Verse 5: our minds are set on things of the Spirit. Verse 13: that we live according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14: that we are led or controlled by the Spirit. And verse 17: we suffer with Christ. The Spirit's witness is not subjective mysticism, but real and objective evidence of our sanctification by faith. Now, you're going to see a lot more crossover with 1 John now that we're teaching through 1 John on Wednesday nights, but 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. How do you know if you've come to know God? Is it, is it because you said a prayer you had a moment of, of spiritual ecstasy or because you made a decision in your mind or because you got baptized. No, we know that we belong to God if we are obedient and growing in our obedience. First John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him 
And by this we know that he abides in us. How do we know that he abides in us? By the Spirit whom he has given us. John makes it clear that keeping God's commandments requires having the Spirit. And only God's children have the Spirit. And this is likely Paul's point in referring to the Spirit's witness in verse 16. We can know that we are God's children both by the privilege we now have to address Him as Father and by the fact that the Holy Spirit confirms that we have been born again through His transformative work in our lives. Church, we do not have to rely on some subjective inner sense that we belong to God. We can look at our lives, we can ask those around us to look at our lives and know objectively that we have the Holy Spirit at work within us, and only those who belong to God have the Holy Spirit within them. And if the Spirit Himself bears witness that we are the adopted children of God, verse 17 draws out the natural conclusion that those who are children are also heirs. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. If we are in Christ, if His Spirit dwells within us, then we are heirs, 1 Peter 1, 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Galatians 3.29 tells us that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Isn't that amazing? Do you belong to Christ? Then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs to Abraham's promise. And, and this is astounding since Romans 4.13 tells us that Abraham will inherit the whole world. Abraham was promised some land at one point, a promised land, so to speak. And that, that promise, even amongst the Jewish people, became to, to morph into an understanding through the prophets that Abraham was not just going to inherit Israel. If you think that the Jews are going to inherit Israel someday... Or, or that that's going to become God's nation, you're, you're actually thinking way too small because the Bible actually promises Abraham's offspring are going to inherit the whole world. Who are Abraham's offspring? Those who belong to Christ. Abraham's promises are ours. And Paul says something even more stunning here. Believers are not only heirs to what God has promised, but they are heirs of God Himself. The supreme benefit of the covenant of Abraham being not inheriting land, even if it is the whole world, but having God. Having God as our Father is the greatest benefit. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, which means, at least in part, that we will share in Christ's own glory. Unfortunately, that aspect of our inheritance is spoken of in conditional terms, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, this isn't just some optional addendum like, okay, you're going to have justification and sanctification and you're going to be saved, but, you know, if you want to be glorified, there's this one extra thing you've got to do. I used to, as a kid... Hope someday I could be martyred. 
Now, that's a weird hope, but I knew martyrs were getting in on the extra blessing. And so I'm like, well, eternity's a long time. We've got to find a way to get martyred. No, it's not talking about some certain specific Christians that do extra well. Glorification is part and parcel of salvation. And yet the Bible gives an emphatic marker of condition that our, our future glory depends on our experiencing suffering with Christ. That is what the Bible says. There, there is a clear condition. Those who will be glorified with Christ are those who suffer with Him. And we know that glorification isn't just some little addendum. It's a part and parcel of the salvation package. All who are saved will be glorified. I think we read that somewhere already, right? No wonder the apostles celebrated when they were persecuted by the Jewish council for their testimony about Christ, right? Acts 5, 40 to 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And that was really hard on them. They were sad for a long time, but eventually their wounds healed and they started to get better. And they trudged on doing the work of God, even though it was so hard. No, it says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, something serious would have to go on, something seriously wrong with you if someone beats you and then you go out rejoicing. And here's what was wrong with the apostles, and it's going to be the same thing I hope that's wrong with you and me. They knew that this meant that they were going to share in Christ's glory. See, Jesus had been very clear with them about how this was going to go down. This seemingly strange connection between suffering and glory brings us back to the central focus of Romans, sanctification by faith. Those who are becoming increasingly like Jesus in this world, those who increasingly live out the obedience of faith, will become more and more hated by the society around them. This is why Paul can state without exception, 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this reminds me, adult Sunday school this morning was awesome, and they they don't even need this sermon because they learned all about this in the catechism class. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some level of persecution and humiliation Some level of suffering with Jesus is ultimately unavoidable for genuine followers of Christ. And so Jesus prepared his disciples. This is why they were ready to rejoice when they got a beating. John 15, 18 to 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so church... Do we expect future glory without embracing Jesus' call to openly live as his followers in this world? Do we expect future glory without embracing the humiliation, 
loss of job, loss of friendships, loss of status, and, and whatever else may come from being known as a follower of Jesus who believes what the Bible teaches about things like marriage, sexuality, and gender. If we never face persecution or humiliation for being a Christian, it may be because we are living exactly like the culture around us. This is attributed to just about every Bible preacher from the past, but A.W. Tozer is popularly credited with having said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, people say Billy Graham said that, but other people said it before him. If obedience is the hallmark of the Spirit, if we have the witness of the Spirit telling us that we are the children of God because of the process of sanctification taking place in our lives, the mark of obedience is suffering with Christ. That is to say that we might think we're being obedient, but if that obedience has not led to a cost, if there hasn't been a cost financially, if there hasn't been a cost relationally, if there hasn't been a loss in your life, what you think is living in obedience is probably just you doing some, some good things and also living like the world around you. Unless you're slandered, unless you're attacked at times, unless people think you're a freak, <laughs> going a little too far, a little too dedicated to obedience to Jesus. If the world loves you, it's because you belong to the world. But if the world hates you for obedience, there's other reasons for the world to hate you. But if the world hates you for obedience, this is a good thing, something to rejoice in. Obedience is the hallmark of having the Spirit. We know we are the children of God because the Spirit testifies to us by the works the Spirit produces in us. The mark of obedience is suffering with Christ, and it's here that I want to pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, nobody wants to suffer. I really, 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 really don't want to suffer. I like comfort so much. God, please, don't make, don't make us want to suffer, but God, help us to want you more than we want to not suffer. Help us to want you more than we want our comfort. Help us to, to know the joy and the wonder of having you as our Father. Help us to know that, that greatest of promises, and even though we haven't yet inherited the world, we already have that inheritance of God. Help us to know the joy and the hope and the wonder of having a heavenly Father who's in control of all things and is working all things for our good and your glory. Help us to know the love of a perfect Father who always does what is good for His children. Help us to know your love as you care for us, and so that our joy would be complete. I pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.